Welcome to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. Hi guys and welcome to another edition of the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. It brings me great pleasure to announce my next guest, the endurance physio, Mike James, in our episode three, season two of this podcast. Mike, how are you doing, my friend? Hi, Chris. Thanks very much. I'm good. We've actually got a bit of sunshine down here in South Wales, so um, you've caught us on a good day. <laughs> Will you be out doing any training in the sun today? Been out already. Playing in, uh, so Wednesday's my um, admin day, so I tend to get a big session in in the morning just to the kids off in school and get straight out get a couple of hours in and, and then it's done so mike has a master's degree in physiotherapy bachelor's uh, degree in sports rehabilitation and sports science he's a former military physical training instructor who has spent more than 20 years training both novice to elite athletes he's an athlete in his own right and is the proud father to two children have i missed anything out there mike no, that's pretty much it, I think. How did you end up getting into physiotherapy for our um, listeners that aren't familiar with your work? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a long story, actually, this one. So um, I always introduce myself first. I think I think my starting point is that I'm a failed footballer. I, I, was, I was born in the 70s and through my sort of teenage years, I was literally desperate to be a, a professional footballer. And I got quite close. Um, I spent a little bit of time in what today is known as an academy, but back in those days was a YTS scheme and got released at about 16, 17. So I'd been in and around that sort of level of professional sport with rehab and medicine around it. But at the time, fitness was was the goal. Fitness was the dream. So um, I became a personal trainer that evolved into joining the military to do the same thing. And the start of the rehab journey then happened sort of late 90s, early 2000s when to progress your career in the military as a physical training instructor, you needed to specialize. There was three options. One was to jump out of planes and then throw other people out of planes, which, which was fun. I enjoyed doing that for a while, but um, wasn't somewhere I saw my career go in. The other one was to mountaineer. And again, enjoyed, love loved being in the outdoors, but I was a 20-something young man and didn't really fancy living in some of the places that job took me. The other option then was rehab. So um, I got into exercise rehab initially, and then, as always, the ladder just lays itself out in front of you. And and what was perceived to be the top of the ladder at the time was physio. So um, the next 10 years saw me sort of dipping my toe in different areas of rehab. What I will say, and it's it's always an interesting one, is um, situationally and, and sort of generationally that I never had any desire to be a physio. I did my sports rehab degree, as you mentioned. And I actually thought that gave me all the tools that I needed alongside my exercise and and fitness skills to be the most effective therapist that I needed to be. But it was a time, sort of 10, 12 years ago now, it was a time where everything was 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 governed by physio. Every job, I even got offered jobs. And it, and when I was going for job interviews, I went, oh, right, so you're not actually a physio. No, no, I'm a sports rehabber and I've got a sports science and a strength conditioning degree, blah, blah, blah. Ah, sorry, you have to be a physio and you have to be qualified for five years. Some of those employers even admitted at the time that, you know, that the job spec and the interview criteria was a little bit outdated, but it was that was the criteria at the time. So when I left the military, I was fortunate enough that the wife was able to, to support us as a family and 
I literally did my physio masters to become a physio just to get the foot in the door for some some of those jobs. The the irony behind it is is I've never gone for any of those jobs because I set up my own business at the end of the day. That's excellent. When did you become the endurance physio? Yeah, great question. So officially, about four years ago, I went went solo with this venture. Unofficially, in the last few years of my military career and post becoming a physio. I um, started to do it locally. Obviously, the military life means you move quite often. So I'd become the endurance physio. The brand was was sort of there, but I, I never had a physical location and I never hit social media in any shape or form because I was just always too transient every couple of years, moving house and, and moving location. So four years ago, we moved back to Wales, and that's when... Um, when we officially launched the, the 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 company as such, so it's it's been around for more than four years, but for four or five years is is the official sort of time scale. What do you think makes a good endurance physio? So I, I'd answer that with what if you take the endurance side out of it and you put any sport or any specialization of sport and exercise, the key thing for any therapist to understand the sport itself and the demands of that sport. Now I think one of my advantages particularly when it comes to getting buy-in from my patients, is that I've sort of been there, done it myself as an athlete. So straight away, people will assume that you understand it. And sometimes that's not quite the case. But an interesting example is always that in in my clinic, and I've changed it now, but there was once upon a time where everyone, the in thing to do with physios was to put all your certificates on the wall, all your qualifications, your degrees, everything else. So I had that on one wall of my clinic. And on the other wall of my clinic, I'd been fortunate enough about 10 years ago to qualify for the GB age group team. So I'd raced once or twice for Great Britain and I had my vest, my, my tri-suit framed on the wall the other side. And the number of people that would walk into my clinic, look at the certificates, just go, eh, whatever, look at the vest and go, right, you must know what you're on about. Yeah. Just <laughs> based off the fact that, right, so you do this and you understand it. So I do think that's really, really important. What I would say with that as a caveat is, you don't need to be an expert in that sport. You don't need to have been elite in that sport. Any therapist could become an excellent therapist within a particular arena if they just study that sport a little bit, yes. understand, understand the movement dynamics, the physical requirements and needs, the, the um, demands on that body in that particular arena. And it doesn't, you know, I think some therapists overcomplicate it. They try to deep dive too much and miss the simple stuff. But um, but I think that certainly adds to it. And then on a day to day basis, yeah, I think I think being able to employ my skills, knowing not not so much what they want, but what they may need as as a ther- as an athlete, based on that seasonal type thing. You know how I treat someone in October post season will be completely different to how I might treat the same athlete with the same problem in June when they're six weeks out from their A race. And they got all the pressures of everything else going on. You know, you can't come at them with a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, and when we're thinking about, you know, well, I, I often, with my strength training athletes, I talk about time that you've spent under the bar, the experience doing that. And one of the most transformative processes for me as a coach was when I injured my back over and over, over a course of three years and ultimately learned how to train around that and make it better. Was there any transformative injuries that you've had that have taught you a lot about your own uh, rehab processes? No, do you know what? I'm going to, and I'll I'll explain why it's not that I've done everything right, but I'm fortunate, touch wood, 
But in 30 years of doing pretty much everything I've ever tried to do, I've never picked up any sort of injury. That's not because I've, or any sort of injury beyond the aches, pains and niggles, I should say. Never anything that's put me on the sidelines. That isn't because I practice everything I preach or that I've found the magic answer or ingredient. I have exercise OCD. So what I mean by that is, is that I get absolutely obsessed with certain events and I go crazy for them for a couple of years and then I seem to migrate to something else. So when I was in the triathlon, so marathons was my my sort of foundation. I think I'd done, I, I hit my 100th marathon by the time I hit 25. Oh, wow. And, and by the time that point came, it just felt like I needed a break and I stumbled into triathlon. So all the potential problems that could have been hanging around me after a few years of really pushing the boundaries on, on the long distance running, I suddenly switched back. I was now swim, bike, running quite often. I absolutely overdosed on that for three, four years, did nearly two dozen Ironman in, in about six years as well. And, and then again, at the end of that, felt like, okay, I need a break from triathlon. I've done that too much now for a while. I found open water swimming and went crazy for that for a while and, and then found my way back in the recent years to ultra running. And, and it, I can feel in the back of my mind now that the triathlon bug is probably going to rear its head again in, in a year or two. So by, by pure luck, and boredom or sort of obsession, whichever way you want to frame it, I think I've always managed to jump ship before before anything sinister happens. Now, that's that's not saying something sinister was guaranteed to happen, and it's not playing down that I haven't tried to manage myself in the way that I try and advocate others manage themselves. But there's a bit of luck, a bit of timing, potentially perhaps just a bit of common sense that has kept me away from it. I'm glad that you haven't, that you've already trained today because I was just having visions of me asking this question, you saying that you've never been injured and then going out and uh, I don't know, the the leg break and something like that. So I'm really glad that training session has already happened. Because you haven't um, had any of those major injuries, did you have to teach yourself empathy for people's pain in any way or have you always been quite sensitive? I think it's a skill and it's a skill that you develop over time, I may have thought I was good at it 15, 20 years ago. I certainly would be better at it now. I think I've always had a healthy fear of injury, N- not in a, that this is catastrophic. It's a bad thing to do. You know, most athletes I work with, we can we can be successful around injury. But how I'd feel if it happened to me. And then I guess what happens over, over the years is thousands of clients, thousands of athletes later, then you've heard enough stories and you've worked closely enough with enough people that you go, okay, yeah, I, I sort of get it now. There's always somewhere, still someone today that'll come in with, with some surprise story that I'll be like, oh, wow, okay, that's that's taken me back. Through lockdown last year, I worked with someone who um, she, so for all intents and purposes, she should have stopped running. I'm someone who, I'm not, I'm not a fan of stopping people training. I like to modify them. I like to work around whatever limitations they've got. But she actually was on, on the sort of bone stress injury spectrum there was there was a risk of something a bit more sinister there and at any other given time we'd have probably stopped it but her story was that most of her problems had been caused in preparation for an ultramarathon and that ultramarathon literally couldn't be moved because it was in memory of her husband who'd recently passed away with cancer oh, wow. and it was to, and it was to raise money for, for cancer charity so so even today things catch me out where i go okay we have to, you know, approach this one slightly different. I have to respect that maybe we have to take a bit more risk on this one. And, um, and yeah, I guess never getting complacent with the fact that everyone's situation is different. Even, you know, when, when you work in, in the same field, and sometimes you probably get it as well, 
you have your clients that are re relatively consistent, but then you have those who dip in and out. Yes. You might see someone that you've seen a couple of years ago and suddenly their whole outlook and life situation has changed from the person you used to know. Yeah. And you suddenly have to go, okay, yeah, this is different now. I can't take what I take the file out of the cabinet from last time. Go, how did I treat him last time? Cool, we'll do that again. We have to we have to start all over again and, and address them as, as new people, I guess. I was writing about this earlier, and it's the with my coaching, it's almost like a, a sliding scale of autonomy. So when their autonomy is low, they'll probably bring me in so that I can just get them those processes working well, get them training, getting the consistency up. I imagine it's something fairly similar with physiotherapy, but instead of an autonomy scale, it's more of a pain scale. Yep, it is. Uh, the autonomy scale is there as well, particularly when it comes to rehab adherence and rehab motivation. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I often say that I have, I have athletes on my books sometimes who literally are outsourcing their motivation to me. They, they haven't got the accountability that they need. Sometimes it's a, uh, an intrinsic thing sometimes it's just extrinsic life's crazy they're busy the kids everything else they got going on they need someone to be accountable to but a lot of the time i'm just there to facilitate them doing what they need to and, and be in that little check and measure for them but yeah i think the, the the valid point that you mentioned when it comes to pain is endurance athletes are for all athletes but endurance athletes in particular are, are a are a strange breed in the fact that there's still this stigma about no pain, no gain. And you have to suck it up. And actually, if you're not in pain, you're not doing enough. And we're really trying hard to, to dispel that myth. But then all of a sudden, as you say, they ignore that pain until it becomes a point that, right, now I'm prepared to do anything because I'm in so much pain. They come to see you. You give them the roadmap to get them back on track. As soon as that pain starts to settle... They're like, right, cool, I'm good again now. I won't see the rehab program through. I won't stick to the advice or heed the advice that you've given me. Now it's like, right, cool, I'm fine. I can go again. And then you're trying to manage that expectation with them and, and avoid the possibility of them rolling back into clinic in a few weeks with a, with a big flare-up of stuff. Something that I think many physios fall into, we're treating so many people that they can then not have enough time to then follow up with clients to make sure that they're adhering to rehab to videos and give them um, feedback how have you managed to uh, avoid that over the years and indeed has that ever been an issue where you've just realized that there isn't that accountability there isn't that feedback over time yeah good question again i think so that traditional model of therapy of you know sausage factory one in one out get as many in as you can is is the bane of my life the pleasure i have the luck, luck i have of being my own boss is that I can dictate the time I spend with people. So the minimum session I give someone is 60 minutes, whether that's an online session, whether it's an in-person session, that 60 minutes allows me to not have to rush. I can build that relationship someone, we can have that rapport, we can go off on tangents if the conversation or, or the assessment needs it to get to the root cause of stuff and to really find out what, what we need to do to get better. It allows me then to plan better, to, to monitor better, and then ultimately track people better. I'm not a fan. The way I work is, is I probably never see anyone more than twice, if I'm honest. Probably half the people I see, I see once. Most of my work now is second opinion, or I'm failing to get better with someone else. Can you give me give me your take on all this? And and I signpost them to this overview of, of the, the rehab they need to do or the, the modifications in their training they might need to do. And I sit back and I'm, look, I'm here if you need me. Check in each week. Drop me a message. Let's have a call in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, could be a two-minute call, could be an half-hour call, depending on what we need to do. But a lot more of overwatch, oversight, just step back. And um, and my job, I think, for a lot of people is to... Um, I think I posted about this on social media this week. Too many patients, athletes, and too many therapists think that there has to be an answer, that a specific problem needs to be given a specific answer. I think in a sentence, the approach I try to do with my athletes is to give them direction. So this is this is the things you sort of need to do. These are where you go. And of course, case by case, sometimes we do do specifics and we do deep dive into certain areas. But ultimately, it's like, right, go on this path and you're probably going to be all right. And if you need me to help steer you along that path, you know where I am. That's not normally my approach. It's, it's probably um, atypical. I don't think there's many out there. Certainly the norm isn't the way I practice. The norm is still to get people into clinic as many times as they can, give them as short an appointment as you can so you can get more people in. And it just always feels rushed. I, I spent about 18 months working in the NHS. I spent about a year and a half again working in someone else's practice, a lot of sort of medical insurance jobs, lots of sort of quick sport clinic types things. And it always just felt like, if you just give me longer with them each time, I could do far more with them rather than like, I'll get you in every week for 30 minutes for the next six weeks. Give me one session to see them for 90 minutes. They probably never see me again. Uh, the person that you seem to be, that must have been incredibly frustrating. Oh, it was. It was. I think the only thing that kept me sane with it all was that they always felt Oh, I didn't feel I knew they were stepping stones to where I wanted to be. I always potentially in the back of my head had an end date of right. You know, the NHS was certainly I just qualified for my physio uh, masters. The wife, uh, the wife was ex-military, same as myself. She had a couple of years left in her role before she left. And we knew we were moving back to Wales. And it was a job that gave me good experience, gave me an insight into a different world I hadn't worked in before. But we always knew when we were going to leave and, and go home the private clinic was i had just moved back home we were setting up the endurance physio building a client base and i needed some income so it was right here's a job here's a paid income it pays the bills it gives me some some clinical work to be getting on with but it's part of a journey to get me where i want to and and certainly the the 18 months in private practice was it's over that 18 months, I went from five days a week to four days to three days. And I systematically withdrew myself from the process as I grew my own business more and more. But um, where I've had frustration sometimes is I've often been asked to consult someone about working for them one day a week, two days a week or whatever. And you end up chatting to these people who are great therapists. The clinic's fantastic. It looks from the outside in, it looks brilliant. And there's just this thing of let's get as many in as we can, upsell them everything we possibly can, still stick to some of these outdated beliefs and narratives that we know are bollocks, but it's the way the patients keep coming in. And, and I've turned down so many jobs in the end. And I have to be quite honest with people and just say, look, that's not the way I work. It's not the way I want to work. Great job. Thanks for offering me it. I you know, appreciate the good opportunity was, but it's just not right for me. Do you think there's anyone that needs to have physiotherapy on a regular basis or should it be about teaching people um, enough, have, uh, to have enough autonomy to be able to treat themselves and, and recognize a roadmap of maybe when, what's going to lead to injury? Yeah, I, I think there's, um, there's a context, contextual answer with it. I think what I would say is nobody should ever need therapy regularly. If you want therapy regularly, 
based in the wrong in the right context of what we are and aren't doing for you what the things we do do and don't do it may be that you know if, if you're someone who trains hard and you enjoy a massage then go for a massage but appreciate that it's to help just generally recover it's not doing any specific things to you that we may have once said it was it's not because if you don't have this massage you're going to fall apart under the bar or on the bike or, or kick in the football you certainly don't need you know and again where, where the context comes in in the acute stages of an injury there may be a short period of time intensive rehab is needed and beneficial but it should always be part of that bigger process of right for the next six weeks maybe i want to see you each week but after that, we're going to withdraw to fortnightly or monthly or we don't see you again. And always, again, put in the context, I can show you this. This is where, you know, one of the good things for our industry through the pandemic is part of the problem in that was the therapists themselves. The therapists didn't believe that they could manage patients successfully without putting their hands on them. And then they were forced to have to try it when the pandemic came. And, and although a lot have gone straight back to full-time face-to-face, now they can, there is a chunk of therapists who've gone, okay, that worked far better than I thought. I may be able to do some sort of hybrid model here now where I do a little bit of online and a little bit of in-person and, and I'm successful with it. Isn't so it the same physios that were trying to put a name to a specific pain and that might be through insecurity rather than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is with, with most of these people, it's, um, and, and I empathize with this with them, there's very few people out there who I genuinely believe are the charlatans and snake oil salesmen who, who know better but try to deceive people to make money. I, I don't believe there's many of them around. What there is a huge chunk of is people who don't know what they don't know. They still, you know, that they trained many, many years ago. They're busy running their own businesses, trying to help people, and they haven't evolved with the way the thinking and research and knowledge has changed. So they don't know that they're out of date. They don't know some of the things they're saying are now not proven. And then when you challenge these people in whichever way you do it, it's tough for them. Because on one hand, they've got this personal history of being relatively successful with people. When you say to them then, well, yeah, you've been successful, but it's because of Y, not because of X. That's a tough pill to swallow. And it's, it takes a, it's a big shift to turn around fast. So as much as there's, a, there's a, an army of therapists out there who are fighting the good fight to change the narratives that we say to people about what we do and how it works and why it works, potentially we're trying to force it down people's necks. I've certainly taken a step back. When I when I jumped on social media first, I was a lot more aggressive in calling out BS, trying to push evidence on people, trying to do what I thought was the right thing at the time to realize that maybe you absolutely convert one or two people with, with every post you put out. But actually, you probably alienate 10 others because they just go, <laughs> wow, that's too much for me to take all of a sudden. So now if I put something out a little bit more subtly, I'll question more than make a statement try and stimulate conversation and thoughts then you plant that seed with a few more people and they go away and maybe read a bit more themselves speak to some other people and then all of a sudden go yeah okay perhaps i do need to change a little bit of course there, there are people out there who are in it to profiteer and they absolutely damn well know that their their stories are a little bit outdated but it's worked and it's working and that's therapists who treat but it's also therapists who train other therapists in their skills 
or techniques or, or, or modalities. So um, they get found out really quick and they tend to not be on the social media parapet because they know they're going to get called out. Mm -hmm. so, um, so they're harder to track down, harder to, to find. But uh, general, generally, most therapists mean well, hope to do well, are sincere people trying to help others and they've just not, not kept up with the research. How do you keep on top of the research yourself? Oh, it's, a, it's tough. I think the, 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 the evolution I've done, which seems to be what a lot of others I know have done, is you go through that stage of going, I need to learn everything. And within a few years of trying to do that, you just realise there's no way I'll ever learn any, everything. What, what are the things that I need to know the most? And let's double down on them and let's keep a, a, an idea in the background. I think what I've learned to do over the years is find the easiest, most trusted ways to get the primary research that I need to keep up to date with. And then the people who are specialists in other areas that I trust to be genuinely up to date and balanced. So, for example, I still see some people who deal with back pain, but because of working in endurance sports, I'm probably not up with the absolute up-to-date evidence with back pain research right now. So I know two or three people who are, and I follow them on social media. If I've got a case that comes in that I'm still a little bit, I wonder if anything's changed on that, or I wonder why this may not be going how we thought it would. I can drop them a line and just say, right, you know, this is the case, this is the person I've got, this is what we're doing, anything, anything you can add to it. And they generally just help or confirm or... I'll tell you your bollocks and you need to do something else. But, but it is definitely working out, uh, appreciating first that you'll never know everything. And, and it's a futile exercise to try to then realize which particular rabbit hole, if any, there are generalists out there, but which particular rabbit hole you want to dive down. And, and the only reason I say that is because to me, keeping up with research and just your day-to-day -day job, if you're not passionate about it, it's such a hard thing to do. You know, because I live and breathe and think endurance sports literally 20 hours a day, then keeping up with the research for it, for a personal performance point of view, from a professional point of view, helping other people point of view, and I guess just being a bit of a geek point of view, then it's not hard work to keep up to date with that. But if you said to me, Mike, we want you to be the leading expert on, you know, COVID rehab, for example, it, it, it's, it's something I need to know because I'm working with COVID athletes, but I don't have a passion for it. I don't, I don't have a fire in my belly that makes me want to read everything out there and listen to every podcast that's going. And then I guess the other thing I would say is, is making that effective use of the time you've got. So anytime I train these days, I've got a podcast on or an audiobook. Those days you sat in the house and there's just crap telly on and you're watching it going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm watching this. Consciously turning it off to do something more constructive is... Um, you know, don't get me wrong, there's times late at night when I finish the busy day and I go, oh, fine, I'll just watch some dross on telly. But um, but trying to make the best use of my time is, is key. Through COVID, my, my dad lives um, about an hour away, so he was self-isolating. He's elderly, lives on his own, so I was going down every 10 days with shopping for him. But every 10 days, I suddenly had two hours that I could do some research or some podcasting and listen to stuff. And that became brilliant through COVID with homeschooling and everything else that was going on to suddenly go, right, there's two hours a week I can ring friends to a bit of learning time. Mm -hmm. It may not be the perfect learning that I want to do, but it's good enough for me to keep up to date with stuff. Um, just as a quick caveat, um, is there um, a particular, let's say top three favourite podcasts that you were listening to in that time? 
Oh, they change all the time. I've got so many on, on my thing. One of the ones that I really enjoy right now is the Science of Sport podcast. That's <laughs> Professor Ross Tucker and Mike Finch down in South Africa. If you've got an interest in performance, physiology, and topical issues in sports science, it's sensational. They'll talk from everything to transgender, to doping, to rugby injuries, concussions, the lot. It's quite, you know, it, it's generalist. They've talked about running shoes and all sorts of stuff. But that's just one of those trustworthy sources where someone far brighter than you has done the legwork to get the evidence, but they're able to project it simply to you for you to go, okay, cool, that makes sense. There's there's half a dozen physio ones that I'm I'm normally dipping in and out of. And then there's a couple that I just like for background knowledge, there's one called um, Science Versus. So these these guys will take something and just science the crap out of it in simple terms. So they could be something like they did one for COVID, but they could do one with, you know, if, if a nuclear bomb went off tomorrow, how many of the world would die? And they'll pull in these world-leading experts to actually give us the answer in scientific terms. But it's quite light-hearted. It's presented quite in quite a funny sort of down-to-earth way. So I deep the physio ones tend to be the more deep-dive ones I go into. Again, there's another batch of endurance-based ones that I, I listen to. And then I host a couple as well. So so I'm always sort of re-listening to our old ones to make sure they're they're on point and that we've uh, we've not dropped the guard on that stuff as well. Okay, that's my listening sorted for the next month. Um, so I will get on that to swing back to what we were discussing before. Um, would you agree as a rule that the more experience someone gets as a professional, the more they will refer out to other people and recognise gaps in their knowledge? You'd like to think so, yeah. You know, I think, I think um, when you're comfortable at being uncomfortable about stuff and you're happy that you've got uncertainty and there's a network, I think what happens as you grow experience is that you form those networks that you trust. Anyway, some of the younger therapists that I, I mentor, I chat to sometimes, don't feel that's something they should or could be doing now. And I say, even if you've got a network of peers, they don't all have to be experts. They don't have to be, you know, leading lights in the world. But just people that you can discuss things with and chat with and admit that you may not quite know the answers to everything, then life certainly gets easier. The only thing I always, the thing I'm always cautious about, because I see it infrequently, but but more often lately with therapists is things like social media that do allow you to outsource some some thoughts to people in an easy way. You start getting people who now become reluctant to make a commitment or a decision themselves because, well, I can just ask people who know more than me. And I'm like, well, no, that's not part of it. As a therapist, you're an autonomous clinician who's there to make those decisions yourself. And, um, and although you can have a network to support you, they shouldn't be your crutch that tells you what to do. So, um, so it is the it's the real sort of um, nuanced ability to have a network, know it's available if you need it, but only access it when it's appropriate. Um, how would you recommend someone chooses um, a physiotherapist if they're um, looking for one for the first time? Cool. Good question. Yeah. I think there's a few things I'd suggest with this one. One of the companies that I work closely with, a company called Sports Injury Fix, we did a study on runners. We asked nearly 10,000 runners, how many therapists you see before you find the one that works best for you? And the average was about three to five. So my first thing to anyone listening would be look around, speak to therapists, don't feel an obligation to stick with the ones that you first see because they're all humans and sometimes you'll just get on with some people and some people you won't. 
most therapists or most therapists worth their own salt should be quite comfortable if someone rings them up and says, can you tell me how you work? What sort of philosophies you've got? You know, how, how, how do you tend to treat people and see if that fits in what they want? You know, I, I, I have plenty of athletes who get in touch with me, ask me the same question. And when I say, well, look, I'm a predominantly hands-off therapist who likes to empower you through exercise and knowledge to manage yourselves. I will, of course, put hands on people if it's appropriate at an appropriate time for an appropriate time. But generally, that's me. I'm, 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 we'll spend time working on what you can do. And some will turn around to me. Oh, great. Cool. I like that. But to be honest, I'm looking for someone to rub me, touch me, do stuff to me. You know, I, I, I want more. OK, cool. I know someone who can do that is a number. I recommend you get in touch with them then. So I signpost people to other people all the time. And the reason being with that is, should I end up with that person in my treatment room? Neither of us are fulfilled from what we're doing. I don't want someone who's passively dependent on me. I don't want someone who doesn't want to manage themselves and empower themselves. And likewise, they don't want someone who's trying to get them to go and self-manage. So, so it works for nobody. In the short term, if I was short-sighted, I could see, oh, I've lost a bit of money there. But actually, I'd rather not have the money, but be happy and, and content with the patients I am seeing, which then is the knock-on again to answer the previous question about how do you manage them? Well, if I've got someone who's happy to go and self-manage and have me at arm's length, everybody's a winner. So, so look around. Don't jump into the first one that you, um, you see. If you do start seeing someone and you work out that it's just not working for you, don't be scared to get away quick and find someone else. I think one of the ways in, in, a, in a reverse answer to the question, one of the ways I would say is, is the things you should be looking for them not to do rather than how do you find the right one? It's easier to find the wrong ones. So if you've got a therapist who before he's even really talked to you or assessed you is wanting to, you know, standard routinely scan you, x-ray you, MRI you, of course, there's a time that's an appropriate investigation avenue to follow. But if, if the first thing they want to do is scan you without a clinical reason to do it, or they want you to sign up to some sort of direct debit, that they want to see you three times a week for the next six weeks, and it's going to cost a grand, run away as fast as you can, because those are the people who probably aren't there to help you. They're the ones who are there to, um, to, 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 to just take your money. The question... I've been asked a few times, which I love, and I think this is a brilliant question, which would, would rock most people. Most therapists would be rocked by this, but I thought it was genius. I had a guy ask me, it was quite, it was, it was a bit of an entrepreneur. He was a really successful guy, um, confident in himself. I'd obviously interviewed lots of people in facets of his working life before. And when he came to me, or when he contacted me about treating him, it was more like he was interviewing me for a job. And he said, Mike, um, I got one last question. I've liked everything you've said. Can you tell me a time when you failed to get someone better? Tell me one of your failures. Because it's easy for me to ring every therapist under the sun and tell me how good they are. What I want you to do is tell me what you got wrong one time and what you learned from it. And it was a brilliant question. And, um, and I, I um, tell a lot of therapists now to reflect on that sort of thing themselves. And as it happened, me and him ended up having a fantastic relationship for about six months while he was training for an Ironman. And, and I really liked that question. And, and even if, if they fail to answer it or can't answer it in a good way, again, that's probably a good, 
good alarm bell for you that maybe they're not all that because they either don't think they've had failures or the failures they've had, they've never sat down and tried to reflect on it and learn from it. So, I mean, you never get everyone better. You never get everyone better as much as you want them to get better. So um, that was a really great question. It's a bit, it's a bit of a faff answer to the question because I don't think no, there is. No, no. What, what, a, what a great answer to that. That, that, was, that was great. And the only thing um, I might add to that would be, um, oh, just to see whether you agree with this, um, is whether it's worth asking about what the therapist does after the session. And if the therapist looks shocked on the face and then really struggles for an answer to that, then potentially to uh, yeah, yeah. run the other way as well. Yeah. Or if the answer is, um, well, I just book you back in. <laughs> I just book you back in a week later. You know, we, we've, within my friend circle we've always um we we call that sort of therapist the see you next tuesday therapists for the obvious abbreviation <laughs> but literally based on their normal pattern at the end of the treatment session is see you next tuesday because that's all, that's my plan is you go away you wait a week you come back see me again you go away a week you come back there's nothing done in between there's no follow-up there's no self-management there's no there's no outlet for them to to, to go away and get better it's just yeah you come back see me, I do something to you. You go away, you come back, I do something to you. So, so yeah, I would definitely ask that question too. And something that's a very important part of the services you offer is second opinions. When do you think someone should get a second opinion? Is there any warning signs or could it be something that's entirely innocent or, or what? Yeah, I think anyone is entitled to a second opinion regardless of anything that's going on with their current care case just like you could take a car or anything else for a second opinion with someone you should think of doing the same to yourself i've got if an athlete says to me mike i'm really happy where this is going i think we're on the right track but just to satisfy that little niggle in the back of my mind do you mind if i go and ask someone else oh go and go and fill your boots again if i'm that therapist going and this happens quite a lot my therapist i, I want to come and see you mike for a second opinion but my therapist has told me they will not work with me if I see someone else as well. You know, alarm bells big time. Why are they being so protective of you? You know, jump on a conference call with your therapist. Let's have a three-way chat about it. Let's work out a plan together. What can you do? What can I do? What can we bring to the table to help this person? So um, the second opinions are something you should always think that are, are acceptable to do. The time, I guess, when they're most advised is when a problem isn't getting better in regards to the accepted or expected timescales that it should get better. So for example, if you've you know, got a, a twisted ankle or a calf strain, most of those I'd expect most people are almost fully back within six to eight weeks. You're 12, 13 weeks down the line and you're 50% better and you've still got pain and problems going on. That's not back the way you should be within the timescale we'd expect. That's when I'd be going, right, let's get a second opinion. Some of, I'd probably say it's about 50-50, actually, but 50% of my second opinion work is off a, I hate to use the word advanced, but advanced in inverted commas, you know, a therapist comes effectively saying, you probably know more than me about this. Can you, can you give me a second opinion? That sort of consultation, consultative type way. But the other 50%, just because I've got more time, the way I've dictated my business is with these hour to 90 minute sessions, if you've got 20 minutes with a patient and it's one in, one out, you sometimes can't see the wood for the trees because you're just not spending enough time with them. So a lot of my second opinion work is um, almost finding the obvious, going back to a therapist, going, 
oh, looking through the notes you sent me, did you not think about trying X and Y? And they'll just go, oh, shit, never thought of that. It's obvious now you've said. It's not because it's a, a complex thing or a specialist skill. It's just spending a bit longer with someone and deep diving into the conversation and picking apart some of the detail. You sometimes see the obvious things that some people miss when they're busy. So it's, it's about a 50-50 split between that and these, you know, can you run your eye over this from that sort of more experienced, more advanced thinking type approach. Uh, have you got any tips for um, any therapists or coaches out there um, in terms of how to communicate with clients in a way that puts your ideas across in a simple way? Would you use advanced terminology and explain it or would you um, keep the communication into the simplest of terms? It's, it's got to be the simplest terms. The, the big problem we've got in uh, therapists, whatever background your therapy skills are in, in the traditional medical hierarchy system, they, they fall relatively low down. Surgeons, doctors, consultants, and then those therapists drop in underneath. So I think for many years, we've um, struggled to always try to justify ourselves to those above us. We've tried to speak really cleverly, use big words, use complexity to, to justify our position. Unfortunately, then, that becomes habitual and routine. And when you turn to face the public and your clients, you still project this medical jargon, try to justify. And again, if you're now in a world where Oh, there's tons of therapists. It's easy to find us. Social media has been great for therapists. Now you're competing against other business owners to get people's business in. So again, I might have put my prices up. So now I feel I'm going to justify that price rise by being clever and complex and adding complicated things in what I'm saying to you. All that does is confuse and lose the patient completely. The ones, the ones that do the best are the ones that just simply say, and you can have, you can use the complexity to get to where you need to be. But whatever comes out of your mouth towards the patient needs to be just simplified and dumbed down. You know, <laughs> you've heard this because of this, and this is what we can do. And, and that's all they care about. And, and, and you know, the, the what's in it for them type thing. So um, don't, don't fool them with, you know, I, I've seen, uh, I've lost count of the therapists in all areas that I've worked, not just now, but the number of patients that I've seen have come to see me having had an MRI and they've got the imaging and they've got the MRI report. And I always say to them, has anyone explained to you what this means? Nope, nope, no idea. And there's all these big, scary anatomical words and there's sentences and phrases that suggest damage and injury. That's quite normal in any population of anyone with or without pain, but that's never been put into context to them. And that 10 minutes of just going, right, what this really means is this. What they're trying to say there is that, but actually, don't worry about that because every 50-year-old your age will probably have that on an imaging. All oh, right, okay, I didn't realise that. thought it was something really bad. So all it does is it rules out this, probably suggests that and now we know where we need to go brilliant now i've got peace of mind i get it and you just think we just missed an open goal get in and again these are probably the same people that aren't doing the rehab because or not listening to the advice because they're now suddenly really panicked and fearful that something bad's going on and it's going to get worse if i do these things the second you show them what it really means by translating it into simple terms they go all right cool so it's okay if i do these exercises then oh no it's not just okay you absolutely need to do these exercises right i'm off to do them now we'll see you later and it changes the old dynamic sorry dude go on 
I'll just say it just changes the whole dynamic of, of the situation and the relationship. I think one of the most fundamental roles as a coach and as a therapist is to eliminate confusion and questions and fear so that people can focus on what they can and what they should do in order to take them to a place where they've got full autonomy and they can train and they can move without fear because I mean as you know when when someone's afraid or when someone has lost lots of questions they just they, they don't move in the same way they don't train in the same way but it's just like the, the spinning wheels are are treading water yeah absolutely yeah um so that that, that was a fascinating answer there um so with um our, our last few minutes what I like to ask um, my guests is is there any mentors um, or anyone that you just want to give a shout out to that maybe helps you on the way up that's just important in your life um, or anything like that um, just as we come to the close of yeah good question it's, it's a really philosophical answer this asked me this 10 years ago I'd have reeled off probably 20 people that for various reasons at various stages in their life were um, were real role models in the traditional way bosses superiors people that just guided me and and almost became that example to follow the last 10 years i've become a dad and in a in a it may sound weird to some but um my men my role models now are my kids 100 so i try to be the person now to be the role model for them so then they're my role models without realizing it i try to do and act and live the way that i try now to get them to want and wish and aspire to be so um so they they and they inspire me every day to do that luckily um the last 18 months working from home they've really seen me work quite closely and um and i'm not someone you know if, if i'm on a call if they were home now where they they wandered in here now although they've been told don't come in dad's working i'm not one of those who shoes them out or you know just to sort of right come in say hello to people this is dad's work this is what he does important to be nice to people and it's important to take the time to listen and, and blah 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 so um so yeah in, in a predictable way almost but for most dads listening or mums watching but uh, my kids are my role models without a doubt that's an amazing answer for anyone that wants to find out more about mike james the endurance physio uh, where can both coaches um and um just people wanting treatment where can they find out more about you Best place right now is social media. The website's been down for a big overhaul. So it's the Endurance Physio on Facebook. That's probably my um, my st still my stronghold where most of my content gets pushed on there. Um, it's at the Endurance PT on Twitter and the Endurance Physio with an underscore between each word over on Instagram. All right, Mike, thank you so much for joining me. That was an amazing episode. I'm sure people are going to get loads from that. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. Yeah.